and welcome to Working It Out, the Art Slant radio show and podcast. I'm your host, Jillian Dykeman, and with me today is Post Commodity. Post Commodity is Raven Chacon, Cristobel Martinez, and Cade Twist. On today's episode, we discuss at length the conception, development, and realization of their work, Repellent Fence. A work that has been almost 10 years in the making, Repellent Fence will appear this October, floating over the towns of Agua Prieta, Mexico, and Douglas, Arizona, in the United States of America. This work will bisect the U.S.-Mexico border and takes the form of 26 floating, oversized, scare-eye balloons. This project and these artists work to consider both the geopolitical context of the land, the people living on it, and it functions as a proposal for the future of this landscape, suggesting borders as active forces, which should be questioned and critiqued. Join me now for Working It Out with Post Commodity. I'm speaking today with Post Commodity, and I'll just ask you all to introduce yourselves. Uh, this is Raven. I'm right now in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I'm based out of, and I'm a, a composer and sound artist and uh, visual artist. My name is uh, Cristoban Martinez, and um, I'm uh, currently uh, talking from uh, Phoenix, Arizona and uh, just recently uh, finished my doctorate at Arizona State University and um, am on on the job market. Um, Kate Twist, uh, Cherokee from uh, Oklahoma and California and um, I'm a multidisciplinary artist and, and a writer. Fantastic, thank you. Um, so I'll, I'll just start this episode the way we start every episode and um, ask Post Commodity, do you think that art requires an audience? So um, this is Cristobal and um, when, uh, if we contextualize that question, uh, we put that question within the context of our art practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have some very specific um, public objectives with our work, uh, discursive art objectives. Um, at the most basic level um, in, in our artist statement, we talk about uh, our role as uh, connecting uh, narratives of self-determination with a broader public. So, so I, I would say that in our case, um, yes, absolutely. Um, that in our case, art uh, definitely requires an audience because our, part of our art practice is the, um, or part of our art is the practice of implicating the audience um, by uh, designing um, embodied experiences that um, lead to some kind of um, some kind of reflection on the part of the audience or that the audience is even physically necessary in order to activate aspects of, of the work that are interactive. Mm -hmm. Such as, um, well, I guess I'm curious about that in relation to the repellent fence. Um, it looked to me like you, you're sort of encouraging people to attend while it's, while it's up. Um, which will be from October 9th to the 12th, if I'm correct? 
Yeah, that that's correct. And, you know, in terms of what I just shared, uh, the idea of implicating the, the, the audience, it's, it's moving the audience into, a, into the social practice field, which is obviously it's happening a lot in art now. But um, the way that that happens with repellent fence is that repellent fence is a manifestation of, of uh, several years of, of uh, diplomacy and binational diplomacy and, um, and um, uh, cooperation between, uh, between uh, multiple partners that include the cities of Douglas and Agua Prieta and all the organizations and stakeholders that um, are embodied by those cities. So, um, so although Repellent Fence is this, this big land art piece, but it, it really um, it re represents a lot of things. But one of the things that it represents is um, it's, it's the outcome of um, this binational um, uh, collaboration and, and diplomacy, which is taken uh, which is taken or is the result of uh, hundreds of people co um, collaborating and cooperating with one another in order to make that happen or in order to make that possible. Mm -hmm. And so with, uh, I think in that case, it seems like there's maybe not such a distinction between like collaborator and audience. Would that be a fair assessment? Um, I, I still think there is because in some cases, I, I think uh, we use this term sometimes to describe our uh, act, um, things that we're doing within the work. We, we talk about flipping the script. And so sometimes we're flipping the script on the audience and other times the audience is flipping the script on us. And the, the reason why we, we allow that um, space for that to happen is because we're we're trying a lot of our work is place-based and it's and and where you know place matters and we position ourselves as guests in the in the places we're invited to go and work you can't um champion self-determination we can't champion that if we're if we're controlling the if it's not a dialogue mm -hmm. We're, if we're controlling the discourse. So um, in the case of Repellent Fence, for example, the communities have have articulated this idea that the, um, the, the peace is symbolically to them represents a suture, that it's, it's a peace that in a way it helps build local capacities um, it, aesthetically, it, it looks like it's stitching the, the community back together, mm -hmm. but functionally and pragmatically, it's, a, it's actually, uh, it's, it's a, well, it's actually doing that pragmatically as well, because it's, it's been a grounds for uh, stakeholders to build um, uh, capacities to cooperate binationally. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, in some cases, I would agree with that assumption, but in other cases, um, we're, we're actually very strategic and tactical about our discourse and we're positioning it. So yeah, it kind of, it kind of goes both ways. It just depends on what the context is and what the moment is in time. 
Okay, so um, can you speak to the relationship between or how this work, the repellent fence, relates to sort of 1970s um, large-scale land art or earthworks? Uh, this is Raven. Uh, yeah, we, we've been very conscious to turn this into a, a, a piece which was, uh, for one, you know, also could be a performance. That's always been there from the beginning. But uh, we wanted it to, to extend to the community that we're, um, that we're erecting this, this work in. So we didn't want to just be, you know, guerrilla yeah, artists who would, who would come in and, and put this thing up and then uh, leave. And, and since the beginning, you know, with, especially with the very materials we're dealing with, um, has prevented us from doing it any longer than, uh, you know, than four days. Um, being that helium is very finite and very expensive, uh, it worked out in in post commodities, um, you know, our, our ethos that that it, it's not in our nature to come and and put you know I always use the lightning field as an example like to just go and stamp all these metal rods into the desert and leave them there forever. Um, for us, it, it's important to to have something very temporary, uh, something that we hope is, is temporary, like the, the, we see the, the current border, the current uh, steel border there as, as also being temporary. We, we don't see that as lasting forever. And we don't see our, our fence lasting forever either. Um, but it's very important for us not to stamp anything into the ground. Um, and leave and assume that it's going to be there permanently. Yeah, I mean, I, I see those works as these very imperialistic uh, gestures, and um, it's that doesn't really seem to be much of the art historical conversation. But it's true. It's problematic, and it. I mean, your work, whether you acknowledge it or not, it exemplifies you know your cultural DNA, mm -hmm. and you can fight it all you want. But your worldview is going to come out through your work and whether or not it's revealed immediately or if it's something that's revealed after years of deliberation, um, that worldview is it, it, it will be made, it will make itself accountable. And I think that's what has happened with the first wave uh, or the traditional wave of, um, of, of land artists, the uh, the icons of the field are are really about self gratification mm -hmm. on the land, um, and and that tends to be the Western, you know, the Judeo Christian Western scientific worldview narrative is to remake the land in your image or to look at the land and, and to see what you can make it rather than to look at the land and see it for what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, those are two very, very different worldviews. And, um, you know, I think we address those issues uh, pretty intensely throughout our entire body of work. Um, not to say that, not to point fingers, but just to acknowledge how these things manifest themselves and into, you know, social, cultural, political, and economic constructs and systems. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think this is a part of that. But going back to your original question, um, I think Christo provided a great answer. Um, of, I'd like to just provide a real simple short one. Go ahead, yeah. That, um, 
We're, we're, we've been asked about audiences a lot and do we think about our audience or, or what? And it's a really challenging question because on one end of the spectrum, you have to uh, think about just realizing your intentionality through your work. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's um, a major part of creating a successful piece is to, is to realize your intentions and um, that, that, that's what we try to do. Um, you know, when we're making work, we're trying to get at that. Um, but I also think that's just half of the, the picture. And I think the more we work together, the more we realize that, you know, the audience really makes the work or finishes the work. And the audience is very, very important. So when, when Christo is talking about, um, you know, designing work that implicates audiences, it's um, bringing audiences into the work and placing a bit of responsibility on the audience to engage with the work and uh, to engage with the discourse of the work and their response, their, their, what they do at that point is what um, helps to either make the work uh, a, a success in the true sense of the word or to, um, to pose questions. Mm-hmm. And that's also successful is if the audience is, is posing questions and further complicating what we thought was a, you know, maybe a legible piece or uh, a piece that we thought we had a handle on. Sometimes the audience will pose questions that'll, that'll reveal something about it that's really, really significant. It's not, not just for that one work, but also for informing future works. Can you give me so, a, uh, sorry. So it's like a song and dance. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you def, you, it's hard to dance alone. It's a lot easier to dance with, <laughs> with a partner. And the audience is a partner. Yeah. I just wanted to say some uh, point out real quick when when we refer to Cristo, it's it's our own Cristo ball martini. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Reed. Um, can you give me a, can you give me a for instance of the this sort of audience asking questions that um, sort of change or adjust the way you're looking at your own work? I just want to. Um, prime the question a little bit mm-hmm. and um, just say something very, just a couple of very brief statements. Um, this idea of questions uh, goes back to um, the, the political nature of our work. You know, people look at our work or they'll go up on our website and we'll get that a lot. Um, um, this uh, assumption you guys are political. Um, and it's because the, there is a language that we use that, that uh, uh, supports that, that, that assumption. But uh, when people think about politics, they, they oftentimes think about partisanship, like the, the kind of partisanship that we're, we're seeing in the, in the U.S. and have a tendency to maybe want to just place us in uh, on one side of the aisle or the other um but uh the idea of questions and what kate's talking about is so incredibly important and i'll 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 make room so maybe kate or raven can recall a an example as you're asking 
But but the, the idea of questions, one of the things that's really important to us is um, one of the functions of our work within public spheres is to um, is to uh, promote a dialogue. So we're you know we're really interested in that idea of having a dialogue, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that is so important to dialogues is um, asking questions. So with that, I'll I'll just uh, let someone else chime in. Yeah, this is this is Raven. Um, we. I, I, I think the post-commodity uh, from whenever we're developing a piece uh, really looks at multiple audiences. Um, so this goes back to the audience question as well and, and how we're going to combine all of these audience who, audiences who might be involved in the piece uh, to, to create their own questions. And some of this is done by, by different layers of noise. And by noise, I mean, I mean just uh, looking at all uh, frequencies of this of the issue and, and uh, throwing a lot of those into the work uh, in ways which maybe they're not able to be deciphered immediately, but that but that uh, a person might find themselves looking at this work from from different points of view, and that's the kind of confusion that we're interested in, in making. We're not interested in in uh, this partisanship that, that Cristobal was talking about, mm-hmm. um, but more more how we can how we can have this enough dimensions to this work to uh, to allow for those different kinds of interpretations and um, hopefully those they don't remain as interpretations either they remain as as vehicles for dialogue and for uh, for further discussion yeah so rather than anyone being able to neatly fit it into like a particular box and then uh, leave it behind it sort of remains active with these questions yeah, and yeah, and 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 I mean, it's assumed that all of our work is going to have an audience. We always get asked the question: Is your audience uh, for other native or indigenous people, or for the rest of the world? As if, as if those are two separate things as well. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so when we're designing these things, we do look at how that it might be. You know, these isolated uh, people uh, that might that might have a stance that that is natural. And uh, and at the same time, then maybe working from there to to look at the opposite of that or the subversion of that. Yeah, this this is Cristobal. I, I was um, listening to you, Raven. Yeah, it it what people often don't understand is that if, for example, you 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 point an indigenous lens upon an issue, it. It's a lens that we're pointing that lens so that everyone can look through it. Mm-hmm. So just because it's an indigenous issue doesn't mean that people can't uh, see their own relationships to land or their own relationships to, to, to politics or, or various other types of relationships. Um, there, I, I, I think Raven's really, uh, really hit the nail on the head with the idea that um, our humanity is tied in, into each other's um, cultures, into each other's issues. And so like an example of, and then this is, this is moving away really, really briefly again, um, 
going back to your question, well, can you give us, can you give me an example? Well, when we think about noise and what Raven's talking about, uh, the title of our piece is, is, is generating noise, um, and, and which led to a question from a community member in Douglas who, who asked this very simple question. He says, you know, they came and they put up a fence here that divides our town and now you guys want to come and put up another fence? So that's the kind of question that that leads to that led to a new meaning, a new anticipated meaning, which was, which was when that person asked that question, it led to a dialogue in the room that eventually led to someone else saying, well, you know what, that, that fence is actually not a fence that divides, it's one that in some strange or confusing or vexing way, it's something that unites our communities, it's a suture. Mm-hmm. So that, that's an example of, of a community asking the question that leads to the re- recovery or the, of knowledge or the, that's an example of how our work is generative mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a public context. But it, it does, it, has to, it comes from this place of noise so, and complexity. Great. Um, the, the repellent fence, does it follow the physical fence or is it, it, it uh, intersects it, does it not? It intersects. Yeah. It's one mile on each side. Okay. And of course, visible from both sides. Um, I mean, I, I think that the scare eye motif is really interesting because it's an eye. So um, it's it's looking outward in this way that it is interesting, and it makes me think about this valley export piece, genital panic. In it, the artist is sitting down, holding it again, staring under the viewer, and wearing pants with the crotch cut out, exposing her genitals. And she's just staring out at the camera in this way that's like really, really challenging, the, the gaze. And so, yeah, it kind of makes me think about that, um, that gesture of like owning or, or like dominating or maybe um, just changing, changing the gaze so that it's not this one way thing. And so you're doing that with this, well, I see it this way as uh, the repellent eyes are kind of doing that. Um, they're they're just looking out in this way that's like kind of defiant. I think it's awesome. I really like it. Um, yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking at it now. That is a great image, and I've seen this image before. Yeah, should, I didn't know know any uh, anything else about it. Yeah, so I guess yeah, the 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 repellent eye made me think about that. Sorry. Yeah, you were. I think you were talking about uh, the symbology of the eyes and uh, our choices and in having that image. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're but you're right. You're uh, it is a reflection back. Um, you know, even though it, it appears to be an exaggeration of a consumer bird product, it is still uh, a very uh, universal symbol. You know, it's something that uh, you know everybody can see because they have an eye. They're looking back and looking at this at this eye. Um, and, but at the same time, you know, it has an indigenous significance as well, especially in the colors and the concentric circle. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, and uh, mainly in the colors, um, we, we say that these are, uh, we acknowledge that these are uh, used by many tribes as medicine colors. Um, they also, in different tribes, have all the representations of, you know, the times of day as well. Um, you know, from morning until until nighttime, mm-hmm. and then that cycle repeating again, and 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 that's important for us as these. This is a very durational event, and these things will not be coming down at night. They'll be flying during the night. You really have to go back to yeah, the scare eye balloon as a consumer bird product, and uh, not only does it have the medicine colors, it, it does have the the iconography of uh, which is uh, an open eye um, which is used by uh, indigenous people from South America to Canada you know so it's an iconography of the hemisphere and it's an iconography that um, really demonstrates a long-form history of trade cultural interaction of migrations of movement um, and of the cultural will of people to be connected. And so when you look at that balloon, um, what you're looking at is a very powerful, you know, indigenous ready-made, mm-hmm. you know, because of the iconography, because of the colors. And you could even say because of the shape, you know, the, the circular uh, global globe shape, the roundness uh, represents a roundness of, of uh, an indigenous worldview. So there's so many things uh, that are loaded in that that um, object that it, it it can become you. It could easily be viewed as a as a powerful semiotic vehicle, you know, for indigeneity, and that's. It's kind of silly to say that in, in some respects to look at a failed bird repellent product and then to go, oh my God, that is a, that's a semiotic vehicle for indigeneity. <laughs> I mean, there's some, I mean, you have to laugh when yeah. you think of it. Well, you they, have knowledge there's some form of irony there, but it, I mean, still the facts remain, you know. There's, there's the rhetorical angle to the eye. Um, which is the idea that, you know, the eye is a, it's a coincidence. It, it happened to be on this product for scaring birds. It's a coincidence that it's, that it's a, um, a, an indigenous icon that spans the entire hemisphere. But it's interesting to think about how um, uh, economic systems that are built upon a Western worldview would would come to terms with that particular image as something that is built around uh, warfare mm-hmm. uh, and scaring something. Mm-hmm. So it, so you have the scare eye rhetoric and then on on the indigenous side, and this is not to this is not to uh, um, create some kind of dichotomy of aboriginalism. It's just, it's just to point out this, this um, rhetorical systems and how they're in tension with one another and how they're dialoguing with one another. In, in, the, in the indigenous rhetoric, it's, it's a rhetoric of the open eye. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
uh, something something we we learned recently when we were down in Douglas and Agua Prieta and having a meeting with city officials from both sides of the border you know that that eye is is it's it's it does stare down and it does have all those qualities we've we've talked about but it also has an, another quality which is, is which is also equally important it's this quality of um, having your eyes open to what's going on at the border, what's going on in the world. So it's 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 a symbol of awareness, uh, a symbol of social consciousness that is that is about being aware and is about remembering. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about with that border and the the, the physical fence as well. Uh, just the racist nature of it. It, it. All you have to do is start comparing it to the U.S.-Canadian border, and it's ridiculous. Like the the differences in treatment between people crossing the one border versus the other is relatively open, especially compared to the U.S.-Mexico border. There's there are border checkpoints. Like there's one in Alaska where there is no U.S. border guard. You can just as a Canadian like freely wander in. There's just uh, customs on the Canadian side. Um, so, I mean, it, it brings up all of these things immediately, and um, I feel like it's so important. It's also so timely right now with the um, refugee crisis in Europe and the fences that they're building mm-hmm. to keep them out. Like, it's just, you know, such, a, such an important thing to be <laughs> having these open eyes looking at. And so I know it's probably been a bit of a process. Uh, my understanding is that the inception of this piece was around 2007. so. We're almost 10 years on, but um, yeah, the timeliness is, is pretty amazing. Although, I, you know, acknowledging that this has been an issue um, all along. So it just seems mm-hmm. to be coming to a head in Western media in a way. It's getting more attention perhaps than it has. And, and um, yes, of course, with your election in, in the US coming up, then it's also mm-hmm. very timely in that way. Um, how has the project changed since the inception? That's a really hard question okay. um, because there's always been a lot of, you know, conflicting ideas or inherent contradictions to the work and uh, in its in its inception phase and um, it and a lot of those inherent contradictions still exist, but many of them have been resolved by community collaboration and input mm-hmm. and positioning and uh, and things of that nature but you know from I think when it started out it was really more personal uh, to, to you know post commodity it was more uh, you know more of a gesture definitely more of a gesture um, it would uh, uh, it was more concerned with the formalist qualities of sculpture and thinking of it in terms of you know how it work functions aesthetically mm-hmm. it, you know it, 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 I think it had all those problems that a lot of art pieces have when you start something you know and then when it takes on a life of its own um, and you're able to do more research and get really uh, involved in the project you know that that you reach that point of no return in large-scale works where you've invested a considerable amount of time and 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 resources and there's no turning back 
And I think at that point we started, the meaning started to evolve. And then um, it started to evolve with uh, post-commodities evolution um, in 2007, uh, up until 2009, let's just say that um, the members, you know, uh, Stephen Yazzi was working uh, a lot with Post Commodities, one of the founding members, and he has a tendency, like his, um, you know, default button is humor Mm -hmm. and irony. And I think um, as Raven started working with Post Commodity, there, you know, that was held in check a little bit, a counterbalance. Mm-hmm. And then when Cristobal, uh, uh, when Cristobal joined the uh, post commodity, started working with us in 2010, um, it was another counterpoint um, because it was something he was studying in terms of, of rhetoric and political philosophy and, and all sorts of things. And he broadened our lens for sure. Mm-hmm. It went from personal to more global uh, view, uh, for sure. And so it just started getting more and more complicated, but, you know, at the end of the day, it started with the idea of, you know, having giant balloons and a lot of them and take up a large physical space and, uh, and in a variety of different configurations, you know, um, to, to this point to where we have, a lot of balloons, a lot of giant balloons, you know, still filled with helium. And the configuration is bisecting the border. It's it's crossing the border at a 90 degree angle, pretty much. And, uh, you know, so you if you just look at it in terms of structure, aesthetics, design, not a lot of evolution. Mm-hmm. But just- when you look at it in terms of meaning, in terms of how it is positioned it's like night and day difference and that's really through the process of working of post commodities evolution of the evolution of the community collaboration the input from our collaborators the the input from the the local political and cultural situation and then the rise of this uh this larger conflict globally where You know, when we first started working on this piece, the general sense in the world was borders are coming down everywhere else. Walls are falling all over the world. But in America, between the U.S. and and Mexico, here's this wall that's rising. This at that time, it was like a four billion dollar, you know, congressional uh, appropriation for the construction of that wall. So that was a kind of you know, uh, the global view. And then now that's been, you know, flipped upside down to where walls are going up everywhere. Yeah. And it's a very heated, uh, you know, contested issue is we, you know, the world needs labor and the world is going to get labor however it can, regardless of, of the cost to, to, to humans, you know, to sustaining communities, cultures, and lives. So all of those things have added like a great depth of complexity. And I think when you look at the border, the longer we've worked there, the more we've realized that the borderlands are a microcosm of the larger hemisphere. 
all the issues, everything that's present, all the challenges and all the opportunities that are present throughout the hemisphere are in a, in a, a dense, condensed form uh, in the borderlands. And I think that intensity has greatly informed the development of the work. Um, one of the things um, that is really important about the way the piece changed is uh, in, its, in its very first or earliest um, configuration, it, it was originally going to, we originally thought of it as being a, a, a structure that paralleled the, the border. It was going to be installed on the U.S. side. And then as we built uh, our capacities for understanding the transborder politics, we, we eventually, it, it came, we came to the conclusion that, you know, it's not as simple as critiquing the physical structure of the border wall with the land art piece, but that it, it's a lot more complicated than that. And, and we, we came to the realization that to really generate the kind of noise that Raven was talking about earlier, this, the work really needed to cross the border. Um, and once we came to that conclusion, that, that one singular decision would have massive um, it would have massive implications for us working together as a group in terms of who we would visit with, who, who we would engage, uh, what stories we would have access to. So it, it, it really, sorry about that. It really just, um, that's just a, a, an example of how uh, choices, aesthetic choices are, are political or rhetorical in that aesthetic choices can send a piece into uh, into all kinds of new uh, directions that you know have very powerful uh, social, political, and economic implications. Um, how, how much of this work was kind of invoking it in the imaginations of people because of this long kind of lead up, and, and how important was that, or was it important? to the work. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure everyone will have a different opinion of this, but to me it was almost like, how can you work and start a dialogue with people around the process, but still like cover your footsteps and keep it, you know, quiet enough so that you don't expose your weaknesses too much, your lack of knowledge, your stupidity, um, your numerous failures, and all of those things, you know, uh, and how, how can you keep that from getting out, um, it, but still, you know, get input from people. And that was the big challenge to me was I'd never worked in an environment like that where you really are working, you're exposed publicly, you know, every step of the way. And you don't want to have a meeting with uh, a, a meeting of consequence and show your ass. You, I mean, you, you really want to look like not only are your intentions um, 
you know, ethical and moral and your process is ethical and moral. Um, but you, listening in an ethical and moral way. And I think it was just trying to achieve a balance and always being open uh, to that process. But it sure has been challenging. Um, it's It's been, you know, challenging, but also um, beneficial. I think the benefits for the project far outweigh the, the challenges because it wouldn't be what it is. One of the big evolutions of the piece was having it be named and claimed as a metaphor by the community that we're working with. Mm -hmm. Because we never thought of this as a suture. We never thought of it as stitching land and people, communities and cultures together. And we never thought about it as this is a binational demonstration of hemispherical interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. All of those things came out through intense conversations with, with the communities and collaborators. So if it wasn't public and if the cat wasn't out of the bag before we went in, we wouldn't have got to that place. Mm -hmm. You know, that that idea of co-intentionality would have never been realized. It would have it would have been artistic authorship with assistance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important transition that you have to make when you work on a social practice piece. You you have to go beyond the the algorithm for the piece and it you, the community has to restructure it and remake it in a way that makes sense for the community and for, you know for good bad or indifferent that's a public process and it's open to public scrutiny and it's a part of the public record and you know it's nice that we had the ability as a group to you know to listen and and to embrace those challenges and opportunities because um, it, it sure is nerve-wracking um, but very rewarding <laughs>